This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg lies in repose at the US Supreme Court today as the nation pays tribute to a legal and cultural icon. Ginsburg's passing has added another layer of complexity to an already tense 2020 presidential election, with Republicans calling for the vacancy on the court to be filled soon. Democrats are calling hypocrisy after the Republican-led Senate in 2016 refused to hold hearings or a vote on President Obama's Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland. There's a Florida connection too, with Judge Barbara Lagoa a potential pick. To talk through the politics of the Supreme Court vacancy, I'm joined by Dick Batchelor and Chris Carmody. We'll also discuss Governor Ron DeSantis's controversial proposal to ramp up penalties for protesters. Former Democratic state lawmaker Dick Batchelor is our Democratic political analyst. Thanks for joining us, Dick. Thank you very much. Good to be back. And Republican political analyst, attorney and shareholder with Gray Robinson, Chris Carmody. Chris, thank you as well. Glad to be here. I want to start by talking about the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, President Trump says he'll pick a nominee by this weekend to fill the vacancy left by Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. Dick, I just wonder about the optics of this, given Senate Republicans' refusal to consider President Obama's pick for a Supreme Court justice uh, back in 2016. What do you make of all this? Well, it's the greatest display of hypocrisy I think I've seen, and that says a lot. Mitch McConnell, where he was in 2016, he rushed back from a vacation to be sure that they would not, the Senate would not advance the nomination to the Supreme Court by then President Barack Obama. And then my favorite one is Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's basically said uh, at the time, uh, you just not do this as a bad president. And you should never do it. And, and you can use that against me. You can use my words against me. Well, we are. Because it's hypocrisy that they're doing the, the, such a short order for the election. And they kept saying, as a final note, let the people decide. Let the people decide. And we're not going to appoint Barack Obama as nominee. We're going to let the people decide at 2016 election. And then that president can appoint him. Well, let's do the same thing. Let's go ahead and delay the appointment to the Supreme Court until after the election. Let the people speak. And then whoever the... People choose as their president, let him or let him go ahead and uh, make the nomination to the Supreme Court. Chris Carmody, is there likely to be any blowback for the Republican lawmakers over this, do you think? Of course, uh, there's always consequences in politics. And I think many of them, including Senator Graham, who, who Dick mentioned, thought through that um, at present state. I'm sure he didn't think four years ago he'd have to, to live those words down. But whether it's Senator Romney from Utah, who recently said he would vote on the nominee this year if, if brought to the Senate, Mitch McConnell and others, we are less than 50 days away from an election and really less than 15 days from voting in most parts of the country. There's going to be consequences across the board. I think for the Republicans, though, um, the mindset has always been much more focused on Supreme Court nominees. When Trump ran four years ago, he published multiple lists of folks he would nominate if he was elected. Um, and he's he's followed up on that list. Gorsuch was one. He added Kavanaugh later. And that's why people kind of have an idea of who he's thinking of to nominate by the end of this week. The Republicans, it, it motivated the base. There's quite a few that looked at that and said, that alone is enough for me to get over some of the other issues with the campaign and the candidate, because we see this list and that's some, something that's important to us. So there's no surprise here, hypocrisy or however you want to describe it, that the Republicans and the president are moving forward on this. Because this, if ever an issue that the Republicans care about, it's a Supreme Court nominee. And and it's going to rally their base as well. Uh, Pushing this forward and having the Democrats push back is only going to further 
um, motivate uh, Republicans who might have otherwise been thinking of staying home or switching sides to stick with the party and stick with their president. Could I follow up on that, if you don't mind, please? Interesting, you got the Federal Society, which is a group of very conservative lawyers and jurists who basically influence the president's appointment to every federal judgeship that he made an appointment to force. And, and on their agenda, in addition to having an extremely conservative people on the court who probably would reverse row the Wade Gay Marriage and Affordable Care Act, uh, they also have on their agenda term limits for justices. Is that an appropriate time now to bring that issue and put it on the table at the same time if you want to go ahead and expedite the appointment to the court and not wait for the next president? Should we now talk about term limits or is it term limits only for the members of the court they don't like? Chris Carmody, uh, just thinking about a couple of the senators on the Republican side have come out and said, we don't think it's a good idea to be trying to pick a new Supreme Court justice this close to an election. There's Susan Collins of Maine and then Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. What's your sense of, of motivation for that? And if there are other um, senators who the Democrats might be targeting um, to, to try and get them to oppose this, this move so close to an election? I think for those two senators you mentioned, the politics of home states still governs. If, uh, for example, if if Marco Rubio and Rick Scott were getting pressure both within their party and outside of their party, neither was on the ballot this year, but if they were getting pressure to delay this vote, I'm not saying they would change their mind, but it would make it a much more difficult decision. Whereas those two senators you mentioned, they're getting undue amounts of pressure in an election year, and they recognize that they probably won't get elected or reelected, I should say, if they did not take that position publicly. But certainly the Democrats are going to, I think they're going to pull all stops that they can to delay this appointment. They, I, I, When I said earlier the Republicans care about the Supreme Court, I by no means wanted to um, suggest that the Democrats don't care. They do. And I think they're going to try everything they can within their power to delay this appointment and push it to after the inauguration where they where they hope and believe that Joe Biden will be their their uh, elected president and they'll have control of the Senate uh, because both of those are in play. But they're going to try to convince every Republican they can. They, I know they were holding out hope for Senator Romney and that didn't come to fruition, but they're going to work on others and there's they're going to play in their backyard. I read somewhere that 70 million was what was raised shortly over the weekend um, in, in crowdsource funding in the wake of uh, Justice Ginsburg's death. And you're talking about on the Democratic side or on both sides of the aisle? I read on the Democratic side, but I may have misread that. But it was a significant sum that did not surprise me in the least. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm both myself and my wife are lawyers. We, we belong in our social network with a lot of other lawyers. And this was, especially for those on the Democratic left-leaning side, this was a very serious loss to them, as it was to all of America. But for them, they felt Justice Ginsburg was sort of the, the dam, uh, you know, that would pr- protect American citizens, especially on gender equality issues, from any kind of infringements thereof. And they're legitimately worried. And I understand where they're coming from. I think I think Donald Trump, the president, is going to appoint someone appropriate uh, that's going to have the right background educationally and professionally. And I don't think they should be worried too much. But I understand where they're coming from. Justice Ginsburg was a legend in that regard. I note, too, that the uh, Republicans, you know, the Trump campaign has wasted no time in using the vacant seat as a a campaign issue and and saying that they're going to raise money off it, right? I mean, there's been emails going out. There's been tweets from the campaign saying, fill that seat. 
people have that on their T-shirts now just a few days after uh, the passing of uh, Justice Ginsburg. So it seems to me, Chris, that um, that no opportunity has been wasted on either side to to sort of seize on this moment as a you know critical for the upcoming election. Yeah, it's unfortunate in politics, but it is what it is. Um, and this this is such an important seat to our to our nation, um, and and has such an important impact on just day-to-day lives when you look at the career of what Justice Ginsburg was able to, both on the majority opinions and dissenting opinions, effectuate, there's no, no surprise that it's important to people. And if it's important to people, our, our party, our parties, both Republican and Democrat, will find a way to exploit that, whether it's from fundraising or getting out the vote or both. Uh, and so I'm not surprised. It, disappointed, yes. I mean, it's we're, we've only it's only it's less than a week since her passing, and, and it's already become politicized and monetized in many ways. But that it, that's sort of 2020 modern American politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, can I uh, do two things? First, to make Chris nervous and agree with him on those points. But also, for, and the Democrats, though, I mean, it's, it's going to happen. The stage will be set, literally and figuratively, the stage will be set for the debate. What the Democrats will have to do is basically subsume the, the, the choice and, the, and focus on the issues. Will you, if you're appointed to the court, vote to overturn the Affordable Care Act, taking 20 million people off of their insurance? Will you vote to re, uh, rescind the decision on gay marriage? Will you vote to uh, reverse the decision on Roe versus Wade? So the Democrats, basically, those are issues, wedge issues on the left side of the platform. And those are the kind of things that will turn out, activate a number of young people who would not or, ordinarily vote. So what the Democrats would do from the optic standpoint and the base standpoint, again, is make the choice secondary, but make the issues primary to try to, again, attract their base out to to the polls in November. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the nominees, in, in particular, Barbara Lagoa, um, judge from Florida, Chris what do you know about her and what is the significance or what would be the significance for Florida if she were the, the nominee? When I turned my attention to what, what the president was going to do and it became clear that he and the, the Senate Republicans were going to try to push forward, it, she, for most of us who follow this, she was the top of the list. She was appointed originally by Governor Bush, Jeb Bush, uh, several years ago um, to the appellate court here in Florida and uh, more recently, under Governor DeSantis, she was elevated to the Florida Supreme Court and shortly thereafter to the Federal 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So recently, she's had a pretty historic rise. Her background, educated at Columbia, very well educated, um, but she is Cuban-American from Florida in a, in, in a swing state where attracting yourself to the Cuban-American population is key for any candidate. And I, I, look, she is qualified completely on her own, but I don't think we can take the politics out of politics. And that's certainly a factor for this president as he's looking to win Florida. Joe Biden gave him an opening in his vice president's election process, right? By looking at candidates that had sympathies to Castro, which opened up a door for the Cuban American population in Florida that that four years ago wasn't all that motivated for, for President Trump. Now he's got a window there and by an appointment, by appointing her, uh, Folks are going to rally on that. The governor, all the way down to the local representatives and state senators, are going to rally around that and rally their base to go get behind President Trump if he appoints her. 
And Matt, as a response to that, if I could, please, and, and I, I agree that both candidates that are at least on the short list for the president to nominate, possibly nominate to the court, extremely well-credentialed as regards their legal credentials. Very, very impressive. It's the philosophy that will be uh, debated. As regards the Cuban vote, first of all, the Cuban vote is a very minuscule part of the Hispanic vote in Florida. It's important, but my opinion is that the president has the votes he's going to get in the Cuban community. And the other community that really you've got to focus on is the Puerto Rican community, which in the Kissimmee area is the second largest Puerto Rican population outside of New York City. And both candidates are vying for that other part of the Hispanic vote that are non-Cuban. So I, I... well, it, might, it has a great appeal, I believe, maybe overall to the Hispanic community, particularly the Cuban community. I think his other candidate might really be more favored by his base. And either way, he's playing with a base and he's playing with a sub-base of his, of his voters. So there's interesting politics, but I do see the value in appointing a Cuban-American, but I also see the value in appointing another candidate who might be more beloved by... Uh, the base. I want to turn to state politics for a moment, if I could. Governor DeSantis proposing legislation on Monday that would significantly stiffen penalties that protesters face uh, if they're involved in violence or if they block roadways, um, mandatory minimum jail sentences in some cases. Chris Carmody, what is going on here? Is this just election bait? It's certainly, you can't take it away from the election. This is going with the national theme of law and order, but, I, but I'll give the governor some credit here. Uh, you know, Florida has not had a whole lot of issues in these protests. We had some over in the Tampa Bay area. There was, there was certainly some, some fires and some riots that didn't go uh, all that well and certainly raised some concerns. And fortunately here in Central Florida, um, given our leadership and, and the good work they do, we didn't have a lot of issues. But, you know, I believe the governor's passionate about this. I think he looks at the situation going on, going on across the country and the potential for some powder keg situations here in, in Florida and says enough is enough. These, you can disagree with these shootings, you can disagree with, with use of force and what have you, but you have to do it in a peaceful way. We're, we're not gonna turn our law enforcement officers into targets. And so I think the governor is affected just like anyone else that's been following this national story that took place, that started early summer, that on both sides, whether it's the, the victims of these shootings or arrests or the, the law enforcement officers that are now being targeted in certain parts of the country. So I believe him that he wants to push for a safer environment for law enforcement. Um, but again, I say it all the time, you can't take the politics out of politics. Perhaps the timing of this announcement is related more to the elections, but I, I 100% believe he's committed to this position and the legislation he's pushing. And it's not just because it's politically convenient at the moment. Dick Batchelor, just reading some of the uh some of the bullet points in this Combating Violence, Disorder and Looting and Law Enforcement Protection Act uh, that came out on Monday. Um, Third-degree felony to obstruct traffic during an unpermitted protest, demonstration or violent or disorderly assembly. And then a driver is not liable for injury or death caused to fleeing for safety from a mob. What do you make of that? I mean, there's, there's already criticism, of course, of what that law might entail, thinking about some of the protests that have happened over recent years and, and people being killed or injured by by drivers. First of all, is the crass politics is that this is, reinforces the law and order platform. That's exactly why 
He went to Polk County with Sheriff Judd, who's very conservative. Look, you got to be extremely careful here. First of all, we had this thing called the First Amendment rights, which is just as important as your Second Amendment rights. And we had the right to protest, a peaceful protest. And let me go ahead and, on the political side. Joe Biden's come out and said looting is not protest, violence is not protest, burning is not protest. We, we made it very clear, and the campaign will make it very clear. This is just a kind of a little red meat thing, but you've got to be careful. His proposal has got to be unconstitutional. I'm not a lawyer, but it's got to be unconstitutional. Look, you even said that if somebody shows up at the peaceful protest, if something ancillary happens, you're held responsible. You could go to mandatory jail for 15 days. It's wrong. So I would hope the legislators, including those who are conservatives and constructionists, constitutionalists in the legislature, will look at this and say, look, this is crazy. You can't do this. You cannot deny people the right to protest. It's going to be a peaceful protest. If they break the law, otherwise arrest them for breaking the law. But don't restrict people's ability to protest. It's, it's, it's the whole thing that about they're conservative and they're constructionists until it has to do with anybody expressing their opinion. You look at one more comparison, final note, one more comparison. There's an amendment number four on the ballot. The amendment mm-hmm. number four basically says if a constitutional amendment passes in the future by 60% of the vote, you've got to vote on it again. You've got to do it twice. What is that? That is an effort to deny people's unfettered right to, to redress their uh, grievances by petitioning their government, by amending their own constitution. But it's a whole philosophical mall out there that's trying to basically take away people's rights to protest. Chris Carmody is a Republican political analyst. He's an attorney and shareholder with Gray Robinson. Thank you so much, Chris. Absolutely. And former Democratic state lawmaker Dick Batchelor, thank you so much as well. Thank you very much. Still to come, a closer look at that Supreme Court vacancy with constitutional law professor Lewis Varelli. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. With Election Day just over a month away, Republicans are pushing to fill the vacancy on the US Supreme Court left by the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Joining me to discuss the implications of an eight-justice Supreme Court, the nomination process and the notion of expanding the court is Professor Lewis Varelli. Well, Lewis Varelli is a professor of law at the Stetson University College of Law. He writes about constitutional and administrative law. Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you first of all, Professor Varelli, um, you know, one question people have is, would eight justices be enough to rule on an election case if it was sent to the Supreme Court? I think the short answer is it would not, it would not be enough to meet people's expectations. So in other words, if there were, in fact, only eight members of the court and a case like the one addressing the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, which is on the calendar for this fall, or a case involving the results of the presidential election came up and the justices were to tie four to four, that would mean that whatever the lower court decided would be the rule of the case, would be the law of the case. That's problematic because it would effectively mean that a regional court would be resolving a national election as opposed to the highest court in the land. There are, of course, problems with a court deciding an election in any circumstances, but it becomes even more problematic when that court is not the highest court. So just remind us of the role played by the U.S. Supreme Court in the 2000 election. What happened there? And, you know, not everyone kind of remembers that, right? So walk us through how it was that things ended up in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. So just in very general terms, there was a dispute over the, the vote count in Florida, in particular in, sub, in South Florida, 
um, the Florida Supreme Court, which would be sort of the natural place for these issues to come up, was had decided that a recount um, was appropriate. Um, and there was a challenge to the decision of the Florida Supreme Court to order a recount at the U.S. at the U.S. Supreme Court. So the United States Supreme Court was reviewing a decision by the Florida Supreme Court to order a um, hand recount, effectively, of the ballots in Florida. That has stopped the Florida recount and left the current state of play in Florida, which was a um, narrow victory for George um, W. Bush, in place. So that's the role the U.S. Supreme Court played in 2000. Um, again, legal challenges are one thing. It is not imperative on the Supreme Court to, to get involved in any of these cases if it chooses not to. Um, and I don't, want to, I don't want to suggest that it wouldn't be appropriate for the Supreme Court to get involved in certain circumstances. I just don't think that we should be focusing on that issue when there are so many other important issues surrounding this vacancy and the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Well, let's get back to that. I mean, you mentioned the, um, the Affordable Care Act. So what, what happens there? Are you, are you saying that with the court and the situation that is now with eight justices rather than nine uh, we should maybe be thinking about that more than what may or may not happen in the upcoming election. Right. Well, and, and the reason I, I draw on that case is because it, it will it will resonate with the audience, right? The Affordable Care Act is something that we're all familiar with. There's been a constitutional challenge to it, and that case is being appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. An even-numbered court, were they to tie in that case, would leave the fate of the Affordable Care Act in the hands of, again, a regional appellate court. Um, that's in, that is important. Now, the good news about a case like that is that there's nothing stopping the U.S. Supreme Court from delaying hearing that case until it has a full slate of justices. So the court has control over its own docket. In an election situation, of course, there's additional pressure on the timing. But in a, in a case like the Affordable Care, Affordable Care Act case, um, it would be much easier and would not be unprecedented at all for the Supreme Court to say, we expect to have a new justice no later than, say, January or February at the absolute latest. We're going to wait until we are fully stopped, staffed to hear this case. Well, let me ask you then, Professor Varelli, about the notion of expanding the court. This is one idea that has been floated, that uh, perhaps uh, a President Biden, were Joe Biden to win the election, might consider expanding the court from nine justices to, to more than that. So what are your thoughts on, on that as a possibility? Well, for starters, expanding the court is is easy to understand mechanically. All it requires is a statutory amend- amendment, which means the majority of the House of Representatives and effectively a majority of the Senate would have to vote on, a, on changing the law that says there are nine justices to say there are 11. The Constitution does not tell us how many justices sit on the Supreme Court, so it's entirely a matter of statutory law. And if the president were to sign that law, then there would, in fact, be 11 justices and as a matter of of sort of legal analysis, that would be pretty straightforward. There'd be um, little to debate to debate that's permitted, and that is how you go about doing it. Of course, it creates a dangerous precedent because then every time you have um, united government, so a Congress and a president of the same party, they would have the ability to change the court to manipulate its membership. The reason it's got as much traction as it does this time is because there is a lot of, in my view, justified frustration about 2016, about Senator McConnell's refusal to even hold a vote on Judge Garland, President Obama's nominee, eight months before an election, and then, of course, doing a 180-degree turn and saying the exact opposite on an even shorter time frame in this election. So I think 
it's a it is really a political question in the sense that Democrats have to make the case that it is fair and appropriate to expand the court by two seats, for example, because of what Senator McConnell did by refusing to entertain President Obama's nominee when, by all accounts, there's plenty of time to consider that nominee and then doing exactly the opposite in this case. If there's nothing in the Constitution saying that you must have a certain number of Supreme Court justices, how do they end up with nine? Well, that's a good question. So I'm not qualified historically to give a definitive answer. I can tell you that it wasn't always nine. It was seven earlier in the court's history. Um, And then it grew to nine. And I don't recall the exact circumstances under which it did. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, an odd number is better for reasons we talked about earlier. Right. um, In any deliberative body. Um, I think I think one way to look at it is you're trying to find a number that allows for diversity among the participants so that you get a a well-reasoned and um, a well-thought-out opinion without making it such a large group that they become unwieldy. Right. And then I think, you know, if you've been in a room with seven or nine judges, it starts to get a little overwhelming, but you still feel like you can hold your own. I could imagine being in there with 15, 17 of them, I think would be not only overwhelming to the litigants, but much harder to feel like you're getting consensus. I wanted to come back, if I could, to the idea of when a U.S. Supreme Court vacancy should be filled. Uh, I mean, what is there to go on to, to say, you know, what language is there sort of guiding when a vacancy should be filled? Like you know, how close to an election or how far away from an election those decisions should be made at all? Or is that just something that has come about because of the politics of the last four years? Right, so that's a great question. I think the short, and I, I always like to tell my students in constitutional law that the Constitution provides far fewer answers than we think it will, um, and nor does it intend to. So the constitutional language just says the president shall nominate and the Senate shall provide advice and consent on that nomination to confirm a Supreme Court justice and other federal judges and ambassadors and um, highly ranking executive officials. So all you need is a nomination and advice and consent. What makes this case most interesting, in my view, first of all, is that you have an iconic justice who has left the court, of course, not on her own terms, obviously, um, as she passed away. And you have a situation where advice and consent was, in my view, frankly, not given in 2016. So I think um, my constitutional analysis says, and I'm not alone on this, I think there's a fair number of constitutional scholars who agree with me that choosing to do nothing in 2016, although without consequence to the Senate, in other words, there's not, you can't force the Senate to deliberate or to make a decision, but by choosing to not vote at all on Judge Garland, in my view, the Senate um, failed to do its constitutional duty of provide advice and consent. At minimum, a vote should have been held. And I, and that would have been difficult for um, Senate Republicans because Judge Garland had been confirmed to his current seat on the D.C. Circuit, um, the second most important court in the country, by over 90 percent affirmation. So he had overwhelmingly been voted in by the Senate the first time he became a judge and was a highly regarded and very well-respected pick. So by not voting, um, senators are not put in the awkward position of having to say no to somebody who – I suspect would have done very well in a public hearing. That, to me, was the big decision and the constitutionally um, infirm position, position that, was, that the, the Constitution did not support. 
as far as the legal ability to uh, confirm a justice quickly, the Constitution doesn't say anything, and um, historical precedent is tricky, right? Generally speaking, this doesn't happen very often, and the Senate used to be a much more deliberative body where they would cooperate with one another in, to the benefit of the institution. We're seeing less of that now. Right. Um, so I think this, this issue, and it's a, I apologize for doing it the long way, but this, I think this issue needs to be viewed as a couplet. The decision to refuse Judge Garland a vote is precedent in the worst way for what's happening now. Right? It is an absolute raw political decision that is inconsistent with the promises made in 2016 by the same people who are making choices now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we shouldn't, we, it doesn't tell anyone how they should feel about the substance of the choice, but it's dangerous politically because it, it, there was a, a decision made in 2016 that I think was constitutionally deficient. And now it's being, and then to have that decision only be a one-off and to not apply later when it doesn't work to the same people's advantage is problematic. And voters have to take, take cognizance of that because we are the only check on behavior of this sort from either direction. The only thing stopping the Senate from behaving in the ways they are choosing to behave are this political pressure and our votes. I wanted to just ask one final question, if I could, uh, Professor Varelli, and the idea of a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. I mean, there are obviously some advantages to having the kind of stability of the court where people have been in, in that position for a long time. But is it time for another look at that, do you think? And, of course, you asked me an opinion question, so I will answer with an opinion. But <laughs> I, am not, I am not alone on this either. Um, there is a lot of um, talk in academic circles about the benefits of, say, um, 18-year staggered terms, right? And why 18 years? Um, 18-year staggered terms could be arranged so that every president, of course, absent tragedies, right? So absent justices dying on the bench. If a justice were appointed for 18 years and those terms were staggered at two-year intervals, every president would, in every four years, would have two appointments. Mm -hmm. So we would know exactly what we're getting. Um, 18 years is still a long time to serve on the bench and could create the kind of independence that life tenure was designed to create. So the reason judges serve for life in the federal system is that the founders wanted to make sure that judges were not politically beholden to Congress or the president for their livelihood. They also are not allowed to have their salary reduced while in office. And the reason for that is that we didn't want our judges to be um, beholden financially to Congress, who of course holds the federal purse strings. So. Um, that independence, I think, can still be achieved with 18-year terms, particularly because justices will know exactly how long they'll be on the bench and will create a little bit more regularity, particularly as we see our political institutions prove that they are too tempted to go to the political bottom, right? So we have a race to the bottom right now of using raw political power, in my view, to the detriment of the institution of the court. If the Senate cannot constrain itself, then I think there's even more argument for something like 18-year terms. Lewis Rowley, Professor of Law at Stetson University College of Law. He writes about constitutional and administrative law. Professor Rowley, thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a look behind the walls of Mar-a-Lago. We'll talk to the authors of The Grifters Club, Trump, Mar-a-Lago and the Selling of the Presidency. Intersections back in a minute.
This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. U.S. presidents in the past have had a winter White House or a summer home away from Washington. But Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach is not like any other winter White House. Four Miami Herald reporters take us behind the gates of Mar-a-Lago in their book The Grifters Club. They describe a resort that's become a magnet for politicos and power seekers looking for an audience with the president and a place where the norms of presidential decorum and government business have been upended. Nicholas Nehamas and Sarah Blasky are reporters with the Miami Herald. They are two of the authors of The Grifters Club, Trump, Mar-a-Lago and the Selling of the Presidency. Thank you both for being here. Thanks so much for having us. Glad to be here. Sarah, I want to start with you. The book opens with a scene that talks about an intruder at Mar-a-Lago, and it turns out to be Mike Tyson, a friend of the president. But I think, you know, the point that you're making is that money buys access to the president. And it also sounds a little bit like security at Mar-a-Lago is sometimes a bit lacking as well. I'm kind of wondering, in researching and writing this book, um, does it seem to you like the rules for how a president should act have been completely rewritten by this president? Absolutely. Everything from standard decorum and international policy to the way a president reacts to advice from the Secret Service seems to be different with this president than other presidents. And of course, every president has their own flavor. But this president has diverged greatly from what we have grown accustomed to. And and as you pointed out in the first part of the book, there's this moment where Mike Tyson sort of wanders in to Mar-a-Lago, and Mar-a-Lago has been deemed by some as the Winter White House. And so you'd think it has that kind of security that the actual White House has. But Mike Tyson wanders in, he takes pictures, and basically just gets onto the grounds because he's friends of a member of this club. And he never goes through a Secret Service checkpoint, he never has to show an ID. And what's What's truly mind-boggling of this experience is he's not even sure that he should have. There is no clear guidance on whether or not even Mike Tyson broke the rules by doing these things. And I think that's so different than what we would have seen from presidents past in in places like Washington, D.C. and anywhere else, presidents vacation. Now, this is kind of early on in the presidency. Do you get any sense that things have changed a little bit? Because you talk also uh, throughout the book about how um, essentially the Secret Service are having to rethink the way they do things and, and sometimes the president himself will kind of just do things that are off script, such as just you know pop out of a room and say hello to people without the Secret Service knowing where he is or what he's doing. I mean, have things tightened up a little bit since the start of his presidency, do you think? So they have, is our understanding from staff, but I, I would just push back a little bit. This Mike Tyson incident was only last year. And and some of the other incidents that we lay out in the books are, of course, earlier in the presidency um, where he pops out and those kind of things. And it does seem that he's sort of tightened the screws after numerous big incidents, the sort of most infamous being the time where he gets the news about the North Korean nuclear missile uh, being launched in the direction of Japan on the terrace um, in front of all of his guests dining. That's the most infamous. And our understanding from staff is that it had tightened up since then. But certainly this Mike Tyson incident happened after a lot of the tightening of the screws. So it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. 
Nicholas, if I could turn to you, I mean, does it seem like there's a bit of a difference uh, then in the way things are run um, at Mar-a-Lago and actually at the White House? I mean, we've seen over the course of the summer, of course, that um, security's been pretty tight. You know, there's been extra security put around the White House with the protests going on. Is it just a completely different way of doing things, or, or does some of the um, kind of protocols that that Trump brings with him to uh, Mar-a-Lago sort of carry with him to the White House in D.C. as well? So Mar-a-Lago, you know, has been closed down for coronavirus, but it's reopening um, soon. But overall, it remains a free-for-all in terms of security. I mean, a wild west compared to the White House in D.C. I mean, one thing the club has done in recent months is started hiring an off-duty police officer to be around, you know, at the gate and monitoring things um, when there are events. You know, that was something, hiring off-duty police officers, kind of standard practice for a lot of clubs in Palm Beach. Mar-a-Lago was the outlier. I think what is still true is that Mar-a-Lago staff and club members remain the true gatekeepers at the club. If you know someone at the club, that's your ticket in. Uh, and that's why being a member of Mar-a-Lago is so valuable because you can say, hey, you want to have lunch at the club on Saturday? The president might be there. He might drop by. We might be able to chat. You can push whatever your pet project of the moment is. And so the president, of course, makes money from that kind of advertising. It benefits his private business for wealthy people to know that if they join this club or attend a fundraiser or a charity luncheon, they might have access to the president of the United States at a place where there are far fewer watching eyes than in the White House in D.C. And I think you make the point in the book as well that um, the staffing is kind of maybe not as big a staff as you might expect for a club the size of of Mar-a-Lago. I mean, there's a, a, a line in the book somewhere about the the um, kind of tiles on the roof being not in great shape because there just hasn't been a lot of maintenance done on them. So does it seem like the club itself has kind of been run with a with the bare minimum of staff they, they would need for a place that size? The Trump organization runs its budget very, very carefully to the extent that they did not hire enough security guards to cover every entrance on a 17-acre property. And that's why there are so many incidents of, of just normal people, not your Mike, Mike Tyson's, sneaking onto the property. There was one woman early on who snuck through a hedge and smeared bananas on the sides of a bunch of parked cars and then typed an obscenity onto a computer in the club's bar. And that leads to a lot of the national security implications that the book addresses. I mean, if a random person can figure out how to sneak into Mar-a-Lago and get access to a computer, and I should mention the club has an unsecured Wi-Fi network, what potentially could a trained foreign agent do, and would we ever know mm-hmm. about it? Some of the characters uh, we meet in the course of the book are you know, people who I think a lot of folks may be familiar with from, from watching the news, but we've got the likes of uh, Jeff Green, Rodney Howard Brown, Roger Stone, uh, Guido Lombardi. Who stands out to you like in the course of researching and writing this book was were there some people in here who just you really felt like they could deserve an entire book of their own? Well, actually, the one person you mentioned, Guido Lombardi, is one of those people for me. I had never heard of him, although there certainly are profiles of him in in a couple of major magazines. He's a sort of self-described fixer of the far right 
especially in Italy, but across Europe, he fancies himself the actual far-right ideologue as opposed to Stephen Bannon, who he has called a, a false prophet of that kind of political ideology. Guido Lombardi is a member of Mar-a-Lago. His wife was actually the first member of Mar-a-Lago, and he has known the president for a long time, and he has watched the president's um, development as a politician. And Guido Lombardi has a lot of really interesting insights into who Donald Trump is as a person, how one might actually get their agenda heard through Donald Trump. So as, as Guido put it to me during an interview at one point, being too much of a me man is not going to get you anywhere with Donald Trump. You have to be a boss man. You have to, you have to play to Donald Trump's ego, desires, um, everything that he wants. You can't assume that you know what everything is and you have to move people into Donald Trump's orbit and you have to move ideas into Donald Trump's orbit and then water those ideas so that maybe some of those sprout over time. And he's been, some might say, largely successful in this. And I think he's really featured in the first two chapters of the book primarily, but for me, he is the ultimate example of what a Mar-a-Lago membership can get someone, what a long-term friendship with Donald Trump can get someone because he really wasn't a name we knew before this next door neighbor of his and this club host of his mm -hmm. became the president of the United States. And I mean, people come and go from the administration, right? So um, somebody who has some kind of longevity is probably going to have a little more influence, right? Because you never know what that revolving door is going to lead to in terms of people who do have the president's ear or influence from one day to the next. That's right. I mean, to use Guido as an example, he plays a long game. He he sees advisors that have more quote unquote influence than he does in any current day in Washington, but he is playing his cards on a long-term friendship, on trust that he has actually cultivated. Um, and he has been successful in overriding the desires of uh, members of the administration in the past. You know, he's gotten people meetings with the president that, you know, the members of the administration had declined originally. And he's not the only person that we've seen that has ties to this club that have managed to negotiate meetings or pseudo summits. Uh, the most recent uh, meeting with the president of Brazil is an example of this. It was negotiated uh, by a person who knew the president to happen at Mar-a-Lago without all of the red tape that would happen in Washington. It happened at the beginning of COVID, and it was one of the last things that happened at the club. Nicholas Nahema, so I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the emoluments causes and how this presidency seemed to have been sort of wading into fairly murky waters there. Just kind of lay out what's going on, how Mar-a-Lago fits into that, and, and um, you know, what some of the pitfalls might be for the president or what people should be paying attention to. So the emoluments clauses have been legally, perhaps, you know, the most contentious aspects of, of Trump's presidency and have led to a lot of ongoing litigation. Essentially, there are two, the, the foreign emoluments clause and the domestic emoluments clause. The foreign emoluments clause prohibits the president from accepting gifts or payments from foreign governments. And you see 
a lot of um, problems, according to constitutional experts, with the fact that the president maintains an ongoing business hospitality empire where foreign governments, you know, can book rooms, and you see this a lot with the Trump Hotel in D.C., at, at Trump hotels and potentially influence the president and curry his favor. And there's been a lot of good reporting showing that foreign governments are, you know, increasing their, their bookings at Trump-branded properties. Um, you see that at, at Mar-a-Lago when, when foreign leaders stay there. I think it was Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese prime minister, the president had to, you know, announce that he'd be staying there for free. Um, and when President Xi Jinping came to visit, she stayed at a resort in Palm Beach. And I should pause here just to mention that there's a reason the president hosts these foreign summits at his clubs. It is the best free advertising for the Trump organization and its properties that anyone could ever imagine. And so after President Xi's visit to Mar-a-Lago, interest from China skyrocketed. Um, and a lot of tourists wanted to come and see the place where she and Trump. Then you have the domestic emoluments clause, which prohibits the president from accepting payments from federal or the federal government or state governments in excess of his presidential salary. And every time Trump visits Mar-a-Lago or any of his properties, there is a huge taxpayer bill, whether it's a secret service needing to book rooms at Mar-a-Lago whether it's staffers running up a more than $1,000 liquor bill at the club bar and charging it to the government, those costs are borne by taxpayers. And experts say that's a big problem. I think some, I mean, some of the funniest or my favorite sections in the book have to do with these government bureaucrats in D.C. trying to figure out how to do business in South Florida, where, you know, all these companies they're using taxpayer money to try and pay U-Haul and U-Haul, you know, won't accept a government credit card or, you know, wants a big deposit, but won't say the size of the uh, truck or tent they can provide. So it's just, it's really uncharted territory for the president of the United States to maintain his business empire while in office. And you write also that the real amount of taxpayer money going into Trump's pockets is a mystery. Why is that? That's because federal government agencies are fighting tooth and nail to prevent disclosure of receipts and invoices and other documents that would show the extent of taxpayer spending. Um, news organizations and nonprofits have had to launch a series of, of lawsuits to pry forth the very limited amount of information that we have. Sarah, if I could come back to you for a moment. Fairly early in the book, you talk about the fact that Trump is not an ideologue, and yet you know, some of the people closest to the president, Stephen Miller, for example, seem quite the opposite. Did you get a sense from the folks you interviewed about why that might be? My sense is that Donald Trump has always been the ultimate party host. And this is a theme that we go through in the book and, and sort of gives us a through line. But what I mean by that is he wants to make sure that all of his guests to whatever this party is, that they are all happy, that they all feel like they're welcome to this party. And so if you think of politics in terms of a party and, and the president in terms of the party host, then in fact, 
the people that he's trying to woo, the people that he's trying to get to enjoy the party so they'll come back to the next party are the Republican voter base and also the people to the right of the Republican voter base who he has identified with the help of his friends as people that wanted a different sort of candidate. I mean, his his beginnings in politics came from giving this freewheeling speech to a Tea Party rally in Boca Raton, Florida um, in 2011. And he wasn't even really uh, on the right of politics. He was sort of whatever. But when the crowd said, talk about this, talk about China, talk about all of these different policies, and he did, and they liked it, it sort of fed the beast in a, in a way. And that's how Donald Trump, the politician, has become who he is. And so when he surrounds himself with ideologues, the way I see that is he's surrounding himself with entertainers people that will keep his party guests happy. They'll, they're either people that will serve them the food they want to eat or they'll sing the songs they want to hear. And of course, this is a metaphor for something bigger and, and far less um, light. This is, a, this is a deep subject that we shouldn't um, make too much light of, but, but I think it helps to see it in that perspective because it helps us explain things that otherwise seem like contradictions from this president, that he used to be a Democrat and now he's a Republican, those kind of things. Um, they can all be boiled down to this idea of he's trying to give the guests of whatever party he's trying to throw the best experience they can possibly have. What I'm wondering is, are there other analogies in other presidencies where you know the president may have like a, a summer home or some other place where diplomacy is done and it's maybe out of the public eye a little bit? Or is this like a completely new situation we have here with Mar-a-Lago? I think the answer is both. Yes, there there have been summer homes. There have been places where presidents have done certain elements of what is happening here. But this has never happened at this scale. And the one thing that I would say that sets this apart is that the president has a financial interest in leaving the doors open at this club. This isn't just you know, friends of the president get special treatment. Sure, we could say that's happened with other presidents in the past. Ambassadorships have always sort of been handed out as, as you know, this person or that person is friends with the president. Um, but in this case, the president has financial interest in letting in as many people as he possibly can to this club. And that has never happened before in, in the history of the United States. A president owning a club that benefits from people trying to gain his ear. Well, Nicholas Nehamas and Sarah Blasky are reporters with the Miami Herald. They're two of the authors of The Grifters Club, Trump, Mar-a-Lago, and The Selling of the Presidency. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed it. And Nicholas, thank you as well. Thank you, Matthew. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're online at wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.